0: There's like zero counseling for caregivers of type one. You're making hundreds of decisions in your brain all of the time for someone else's safety. And it really puts you on edge, but you don't say it out loud because you don't want your kid to feel like they're a burden. You don't want them to feel like they're stressing you out, but your actions are still there. And I think she felt that a lot as a kid. Um, as she was little. And it just has built up and built up and built
1: up. Welcome to Fluster clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn
2: Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way and I'll even tell you what to say. So Robin, in last week's episode on hypochondria, I referenced this episode that you're about to listen to. This is another one of our Fluster Clucks in-session episodes. This is such an important topic, such an essential topic, because what this episode is about is what do you do when you're dealing with the chronic illness of a child and you've got anxiety to deal with on top of it? How do they relate to each other? How do they make each other worse? How does a parent navigate both a chronic illness and anxiety? It's just a great conversation.
1: I'm so excited to listen to this. My children do not have life-threatening peanut allergies. However, I can imagine how do you manage your catastrophizing Mm -hmm. when you have to be so alert all the time? That's right. What a black belt and anxiety management that would take.
2: Yeah. And it's pretty amazing what parents pull off. So this is just a a really informative and a really wonderful conversation with a very insightful and dedicated mom.
0: We are a family of five. We've got a two-year-old, we have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. And the nine-year-old is my only daughter and she has type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. She is very much a typical firstborn You know, she loves to help out around the house and she doesn't like to disappoint people and follows the rules and Mm -hmm. all of that jazz. And I think just very much like what I wrote about, like my family's generational anxiety really affected her.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And her, I don't like calling it a disease, her difference, you know, that affected me. And my anxiety, because as a caretaker, it's such a burden. And when you're in the beginning of it, you just kind of do it because you have to. Mm -hmm. Then like it kind of slowly takes its toll and makes you, um, we was just listening to your podcast yesterday about how it's this outcome, (laughs) outcome control, you know, you really (laughs) want to control (laughs) outcomes. Yes. And that's kind of the name of the game with type 1 diabetes though. Like you have to do that. You have to try to predict outcomes for safety. And then we moved in the middle of the pandemic and I had kept her home for that first year of the pandemic, not knowing what it would do with type one. Mm -hmm. And she did great being home. She was, she did really well in those predictable circumstances. And then we moved and it was time to go back to school and it got very aggravated. Mm. Um, She'd shown some signs in kindergarten of this behavior of vomiting when she's anxious. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had been sick in kindergarten, and she had the flu, and she went back to school and had gotten her insulin for her meal and then wasn't hungry. Mm -hmm. that's a normal reaction. You're still trying to get used to your body, how you feel after you've been sick. But for her, that became very dangerous really fast. And then she threw up at school. Mm. And for three months after that, she threw up every day before school. Mm. And then she would go to school. My sister was like that. My sister threw up every day before school for five years. Mm -hmm. My dad was kind of like that. And I was just kind of told by my support system over and over again, this is just part of our family, it's just what people do.
2: Did you listen to the podcast on my fainting family? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it sounds very
0: similar. You yeah. guys puked and we fainted, right? But the same thing, like this is what we do. This is what we do. But like with the diabetes piece mixed in, that can't be what we do. Right. So it forced our family to, well, at the beginning, it didn't force our family to do anything. It, I just panicked all the time about it. And I, I elevated the situation very much by being like, you can't do that. Of course, that's going to make it worse. You know, I don't think I realized how anxiety based it was. I just thought it was just like kind of this gut reaction. And, Mm -hmm. And she had similar issues with like sleep, where we were really, really rigid about it. And then we found it went away. Once we were like, I don't care if you can't sleep, fall asleep on the couch. And then we would just bring her up to her bed and then it resolved itself. Hmm. Our heightened reactions to a lot of those things made it so much worse for her. Yeah. It really became apparent when I started actually addressing my own anxiety, which felt uncontrollable about nine months ago. And I reached out to a therapist on my own, like it's time. It became very apparent to me in listening to your podcast (laughs) that this doesn't have to be our life mm-hmm. and we can reframe things and we could relearn things. And I'm feeling extremely hopeful. So even though she was, she still has these episodes where she gets anxious and vomits immediately. Yeah. We are at the place where I am not like, we are hopeless. This is going to be our life forever. I'm more, I'm like, okay, now I know what I need to do. I know she needs to become more autonomous. I know I need to take steps to removing myself from some of her care so she can trust and rely on other people to care for her and become less dependent on me. But this is where the vomiting piece is the problem mm-hmm. because it's this nasty cycle where it makes me so uncomfortable to put her in an uncomfortable situation because it can get dangerous really fast. Mm-hmm. I was just so interested in your take on how to develop autonomy in a kid when it's so much about pushing yourself to that uncomfortable point to grow, but that uncomfortable point can be life-threatening. So for her, if it becomes a vomiting situation when her blood sugar is low, so it's a really touchy thing. And it makes me sad because I see She's such a wonderful kid. She's Mm -hmm. so great. And I don't want it to hold her back in life. Mm -hmm. And I know what needs to be done. I just don't know how to get there. Has she had any therapy for her anxiety? She just started. She just started like week three. She's doing Zoom therapy. Okay. And it's within the same practice that I'm going to. And we've all agreed that it's okay to share information with each other and she's allowed to say when she doesn't want her to share things with me. But that's made it really helpful because my therapist is actually her therapist's advisor. My recent issues have come from that. It's a really great dynamic right now. Good. Um, so she's just started that.
2: Okay. Because you've probably heard me say, I don't know, 8 million times that it makes no sense to me that you would have a child in therapy for anxiety, not have the parents involved. I agree. I agree. Right. And it happens all the time. So good. So I'm glad to hear that there's all sorts of communication about that. Yes. What does your daughter say about it? What does she, how does she understand the
0: anxiety piece of it? She knows she gets worried. The word anxiety doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really compute. She, she knows that things scare her. Okay. And that she has what I call like overreactions to them. Like she gets very emotional very fast. Okay.
2: Worry is a totally fine word to use. Worry and anxiety are technically two different things, but it doesn't really matter. And I I talk to kids a lot about worry because that's what this thing is driven by is worry. She has strong reactions, quick reactions.
0: A really good example actually is she had had a, we scheduled her therapy sessions for the morning so she can get to school. We had this one conflict in the morning where my husband had a meeting and I had to take my son to school and Nine years old is a very appropriate age to be home alone for 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. especially if you're on a Zoom call with your therapist. (laughs) Yes. When she found out that no one was going to be home, this was going to be her first time, she exploded. She would not go to her room to start her session. She fake vomited. Oh. She admitted it right afterwards. She said, I faked that so that you wouldn't. So it's starting to be a tool also. Uh After her session, she came down and immediately vomited, Mm. like even though she felt great, like it was, she was just so elevated and so activated and it just became this response Mm -hmm. for her. And it was like, wait a minute, you just succeeded. You just did it. You were home alone Mm -hmm. and you, you did the thing and now you're vomiting. I don't get it. So that's just a good example. It's like she completely overreacts, like her nervous system is obviously off the charts and her quick reaction is vomit.
2: Okay, what does she know about the connection between her brain and her body, between her worry and her body? Does she understand that at all yet?
0: We've talked a lot about it because of what I've gone through in therapy, talking about that her body is for her Mm -hmm. and that it's giving her a message and that it's a good thing generally. (laughs) So when she's having the feelings, she knows, Well, my body is telling me this is just something new. Or my body is telling me that this has scared me in the past and I should just be alert. I don't know what she knows about the connection between the vomiting aspect. Okay. And what's going on.
2: So I would change that language a little bit. She's saying, My body is telling me. What we want her to understand is that it's really her worry that is then activating her body to respond in a certain way. Mm. So her body really is just doing what it's told. We want to get to the pilot and not talk about the plane. Okay. What would be great for her to understand is what I talk about, and I tell five and six-year-olds this, so certainly at nine. I mean, nine is such a great age to work on this. She's got this prefrontal cortex up here, so she's got this worry and this worry lives up here in her prefrontal cortex. And that's the storyteller. That's the part that makes something that's not an emergency into an emergency. And what's interesting with the diabetes is that you guys really have to pay attention to emergencies. You guys really have to pay attention to the signals that her body is given. You guys really have to pay attention to that in one aspect of her life. But then, in this worry aspect of her life, we have to help her understand that she doesn't have to make being alone for 10 minutes into an emergency. Mm. She doesn't have to make a change in her routine into an emergency. And ultimately, in maintaining her diabetes, we don't want that to be an emergency all the time, too, right? I'm sure as a parent of a child with a chronic illness, You've got to help her understand that this is what we do and that we don't know exactly what's going to happen all the time, but there are certain things that we follow and we learn about it. We want to help her differentiate between what are the signals that she needs to pay attention to and what are the signals that she doesn't Hmm. because she has to learn how to pay attention to the signals of her body based on her diabetes, but we don't want her to pay attention to the signals of her worry that aren't really important. Hmm. Being able to talk to her about the difference between what do we pay attention to? What do we really need to be pretty rigid about in a lot of ways? And what do we need to recognize is this is a story that your brain is telling you. Hmm. When you say, okay, so I'm going to leave you alone for 10 minutes. I want her to know what her worry says. I'm guessing her worry said, no, this is such an emergency, 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 right? Her worry said, this is terrible. And then told her a big story or maybe just a small story. It could be a fast story about what happens when she's alone for 10 minutes. Right. And how does she respond to that? So externalizing that worry, giving it a name. So anybody that's listening in terms of getting your child into therapy, these things can happen really quickly. One of the things that therapists do is they move really slowly and they talk a lot about building rapport. It drives me crazy, right? (laughs) So you can do these things very quickly. She should be externalizing that worry. She should be. Learning about it, just as I'm sure she's had to learn a lot about her body and her diabetes and how it works and what she has to pay attention to, all that education that's so important for her and for you. We want her to externalize it, give it a name, and then begin to recognize the stories that it's telling her. How does her worry make regular stuff into emergencies? Totally. Yeah. And that's what worry does. If you're afraid of bumblebees, and you're going outside in the spring when the flowers are blooming, your worry makes bumblebees an emergency. Hmm. If you're afraid of germs, your worry makes going into a bathroom in a restaurant, if you'll even go into a bathroom in a restaurant, an emergency. Everything becomes a crisis. And what you're working on now is the vomiting that cheese does that for you really felt like an emergency. Yeah. It became sort of this emergency jambalaya. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Where something was triggering her emergency. She would vomit. That would turn into an emergency for you. Yes. So then we had all the worry parts saying, emergency, emergency, emergency. So you've done a good job of recognizing that her vomiting doesn't have to be an emergency. Right. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with MasterClass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's MasterClass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good and Bobby was such a big help. So, Fluster. Get fifteen percent off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. skylightcal.com slash flusterclux. That's dot com slash flusterclux. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclux. Have you gotten enough medical support about that, that you know how to manage that?
0: Yes. If we were ever in a an actual severe emergency, we have everything we need. Absolutely. Okay. One of the other tricky parts is I mean, so for example, we we went we just got back from a trip to Florida over break. Uh-huh. And my biggest worry came true. Our nephew day one threw up with a stomach bug. Oh yay. Where, you know, couldn't keep anything down. That's, oh. you know, and that's my biggest worry with type 1 diabetes because that's when you're like really kind of in trouble. Yeah. And we're not home, we're not where our doctors are. I was trying my best to not make it an emergency, but we need to wash our hands. But she very quickly picked up on how dangerous that could be mm-hmm. for her. I also am like is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Is this a skill she actually needs to have as a person with type 1 diabetes to know how dangerous that can be for her and to just do what she can do mm-hmm. about keeping her herself clean but you know but the the piece that we were doing was like okay well now i'm going to have to compute these other 5000 decisions of i'm not going to give you your normal amount of insulin cuz i want to keep you a little bit on the higher side in case you do get this bug and she just picks up on that extra piece that of course my husband and I are giving off even though we're trying not to. again, it's like what part of that can we control what part of that should we? what part of that does she need? There's just all these extra layers of decisions and like you're I, I do I love what you're saying though of helping her distinguish when it's an emergency and when it's just a decision Correct.
2: as you're talking about this, what's coming to my mind also is helping you. And when you say, is this a skill that she needs? Absolutely. But here's the differentiation that you want to make, the difference between panic and problem solving. Hmm. Because here you are, you're on this vacation, your nephew is vomiting, and now you have to go into a level of problem solving that most of us don't even recognize. Anybody who's listening to this and is dealing with a child with type 1 diabetes is like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. How do you help her differentiate and then how do you two differentiate, you and your husband, differentiate between panic and problem solving? Mm. And to be able to think about that, and you know, I think about things and analogies and metaphors, is when I think about my friends that are emergency room physicians, that they are consistently in this environment where there is a combination of panic and problem solving. Mm. And their job is to be the problem solver because they're managing life or death situations in which there's a whole lot of panic. And if you can think about it in that way, give yourself a lot of permission and a lot of room to say, of course, I'm going to feel what I'm going to feel. But my job is to be a problem solver and to help her differentiate between my panic and my problem-solving. You don't want to convey to her panic. You didn't pull her aside and say, okay, look, this is a disaster. This is my worst nightmare. Your cousin is barfing, right? You're not going to say that, but what you do want to say to her, okay, this is where we have to go into extra problem-solving mode. This is when we have to figure this out. This is very similar to when I talk to parents whose children have very severe food allergies, so you've got a kid that if they go anywhere near a peanut, they're going to go into a severe allergic reaction. And they say to me all the time, how do I help my child understand the severity of this, but not have them be freaking out as they're moving through their life? And I talk about this difference between problem solving and panic. It sounds like right now with her, that is going to be a really helpful thing for you to talk to her about very openly. Hmm. And even if we talk about it, let's take it out of the diabetes conversation and put it into the worry conversation. How does she problem solve versus panic? So she goes quick. She has quick reactions. She has quick emotional reactions, quick physical reactions. We want to slow that down. So you say to her, I'm going to leave you home for 10 minutes. Boom, off to the races she goes. Oh my gosh, this is going to happen. Her body reacts. Her prefrontal cortex fires up her amygdala. Her body gets activated. She has this strong physical response. You want to talk to her about when your worry shows up, what do you think the first thing that your worry said? If I were talking to her, if she was in a session with me, I would say to her, what do you think? When mommy said, you're going to be home for 10 minutes by yourself, you're going to be on your Zoom call with your therapist, so you're not going to be sitting by yourself. What do you think the first thing your worry said to you? Hmm. And see if she can articulate that. Now, she may say, I don't know, which they say all the time. So then we say, well, well, let's see. If I were in your shoes, we could start imagining things. You may not even know exactly what it is that you were afraid of or what your worry was afraid of, but it felt really overwhelming. It felt really big. And you went right into panic, didn't you? I would also ask her, what's something that you don't really – get worried about that maybe somebody else would. Does she have to have injections of her insulin? She wears a pump. Okay. All right. So she's got a pump because a lot of kids that I've talked to who are type 1 diabetics, they'll say some kids are so worried about needles and shots and that's just a part of my day.
0: That definitely has happened. I mean, her, her brother, <laughs> he got his flu shot. He bit me unexpectedly. Oh. That was fun. And she was just sat in the front seat and was like, okay, well, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, She definitely gets it from that aspect. Yeah, Sure. So shots might be
2: one thing that she really handles very well. And if you talk to kids about other content that's not theirs as a way for them to understand how worry works, the content doesn't matter to me. The content doesn't matter to me. You know, I tell this story all the time when kids are afraid of shots. I said there was a girl that was 18 and she needed to get some immunizations to go to college and she was so terrified about it. She wasn't even going to go to college. And I'll be telling this to a kid who gets shot. They say, that's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. So what do you think her worry was telling her? Begin to talk to her about how does she understand this part of her that creates these reactions? And how is she going to respond differently to that part of her? Hmm. And you can say to her, one of the things that I'm working on with my worry is that with your diabetes, There are things that I have to do or things that come up. And my worry really can get panicky about that. And I've really had to work on that. You could give her the example. When your cousin started throwing up, my worry said, Elise, this is a disaster. Oh, no, oh, no. And I had to say, worry, you can be there. You can say what you want to say. But I'm going to be a problem solver right now. Mm -hmm. You can come up with other situations. What might be another situation in which... We really need to problem solve, but somebody else might panic. And the panic isn't really what we need.
0: That's what your worry is doing to you. If say she gives me a really great example, Mm -hmm. it's important for me to like not reassure her that that's not going to happen. Right. Like, so I just move directly into like, that's a very understandable worry. Mm -hmm. And then kind of pose the question about somebody else's worry instead of... Yeah. Because I've been trying to be really careful too because she definitely always wants to know the Uh outcomes. Yes. After listening to your podcast, I've I've very much been trying to not reassure her. Right. It's hard, isn't it? Because I really don't know if they're not going to happen either, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a big thing with going to school.
2: Give me an example of what she might be seeking reassurance about.
0: Sure. She's joined student council, which is awesome. And they were having, they were participating in a winter fest activities. They were doing opening ceremonies Uh and she was very concerned about it and was, you know, saying, well, what if I have to stand up in front of people? What the day is going to be different? What if, you know, what if the nurse can't find me? What if all these things? And I, and I was just really trying to say like, I can't, I can't tell you what's going to happen. Mm -hmm but I can tell you that you can handle it. Mm -hmm. Good. That's been language that's been helpful for me is whatever happens, you can handle it. Yes. We have to be consistent with that. That is a message she needs to continue Mm -hmm. to hear. So it's interesting to think because that is probably a reason I haven't asked her about what about this is worrying you? Because I'm like, well, and am I going to have to tell her it's not going to happen? You know, if I ask her what's worrying her and then if she doesn't get an answer, is I going to then be like, well, now I'm definitely not staying home alone. Yeah. Use your language. If you say, what about
2: this is worrying you? What we want to say is, what is your worry telling you about this? Mm. And then you come back to, oh, there's that uncertainty again. So say, you know, she's worried about the winter festival. What if this? What if the nurse can't find me? What if you go, oh, there's worry. Worry wants to know everything. So worry says, in order for me to move forward, I have to know exactly what's going to happen. And what I'm telling you is that you are a problem solver. So we can't know. So this is rolling around in the mites and maybes of life. Mm -hmm. Because we can't know exactly. Can we kind of know? Sure. And for her with her diabetes, she does have to do a fair amount of planning and thinking ahead. So she's a really good problem solver. And then worry comes in and says, oh, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. So continuing to say to her in that general way, in that process way, oh, there's worry. Worry wants to know. Worry's making up a story. And you want to talk to her about how it is that you and she, how your family handles unexpected things. Hmm. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time. As you know, I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. Dot com. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster.
0: Another great example of the vomiting. We all unfortunately got COVID in November, mm-hmm. and afterwards we were like, all right, we're gonna go explore now. We've been hibernating for two years out to not get this thing. Let's go to the most populated city in the United States. So we went to <laughs> we went to New York City <laughs> over Thanksgiving. We drove there and we got there at like one o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous. And we show up in the Bronx. It was out of a movie, you know we're like in an alleyway and we can't park and we've got a baby and all the stuff, and we're not allowed to like leave the car. We get in the lobby, the baby's running away. The pool that we got this hotel for on purpose wasn't open <laughs> The hallways are tiny <laughs> we get to the we get into the room, and she starts vomiting immediately, ah immediately and My husband was out parking the car. He gets stuck at the garage because it's locked because it's two in the morning. Yeah. The baby's jumping on the bed like a crazy man. (laughs) And she's just uncontrollably vomiting. And all night she would fall asleep. She'd wake up, realize where she was and vomit. And this happened all night. And it was scary. I mean, her blood sugars were going low. They were. We tried this anti-nausea medicine that we have at didn't work because it doesn't work when it's a mental game. It works when you're sick, but mm-hmm. you know not when it's because of your mental game. And it happened all night. She mm-hmm. probably got three hours of sleep, and she wakes up in the morning and it's bright. And she looks out the window and she's like, "Wow, this is actually kind of cool." Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Oh yeah, you're so funny. That's <laughs> so great. Awesome." <laughs> and then my husband had been up and already had found us a new hotel. And we were able to actually show problem solving, which was wonderful and. Right to say, like, we could have easily said, like, okay, this is a disaster, we're going home tomorrow, we tried, we give up, see Mm -hmm. you later, Mm -hmm. and we didn't. We problem solved and we went and we figured it out, we found a better place and worked much better for our family. Like, that's a situation where, like, it's immediate. She just got so activated that, like, immediate vomit and couldn't come back.
2: What happens over time is the amygdala learns... And the amygdala has a very strong emotional memory. It also develops a bit of a hair trigger because its job is to protect you from danger. So if it is consistently getting danger messages, then it is open for business. So her amygdala is open for business. And she has a very quick, well-worn, automatic, almost pathway to this vomiting thing. That's her response. hmm First of all, no one would blame you if you, if you had all left the next day, if you had been like, <laughs> we're going home. Oh. That was a really good idea. Yeah. We're out of way. I mean, everybody who's listening would be like, yeah, I would have been in the car driving <laughs> home. So good for you guys, right? What yes. resilience, determination. You're like, we are not going back into that house. <laughs> so she's seeing you problem solve. What is going to really help her is for her to understand how this thing works so say you were doing a post-game analysis of this. Say she names her worry Sally. And you say, oh, isn't that interesting? As soon as we got into the hotel, because this was a lot of planning and figuring this out, as soon as we got into the hotel, Sally, who lives up here in your prefrontal cortex, fired up your amygdala, and boy, off to the races you went. The amygdala doesn't have the ability to have a conversation with you. The amygdala can't say, and you can say this to her, your amygdala can't say, oh, look, we're in a hotel. This is not ideal, but mommy and daddy know what to do and we'll figure it out. Nope. Once the amygdala gets told there's danger, the amygdala is going to respond. So the post-game analysis is, what do you think when we're in new situations or we're in situations that we have to handle, where we have to problem solve, what would you like to tell Sally about that? Because right now, Sally is in charge. The amygdala is doing what Sally is saying. Your tummy's doing what the amygdala is saying. If we think about that situation, what do you think we want to tell Sally? And have her begin to think about how she can respond and react differently. Even when she starts to throw up, this is going to take a little while to redo this pathway. You can say there, so even after you throw up, say we walk into the hotel room and you barf. What do you think we want to tell Sally? How do we want to give Sally the message that this is not an emergency? And you can even say to her, so say you name your worry Louise, and you say, this is what Louise was saying to me. And this is what I had to say to Louise. Louise, please, I'm problem solving. I've got three kids to take care of. I got a baby jumping on the bed. I got a problem solve here. Thanks for sharing, but really not interested in what you have to say. So really helping her be able to become an observer of herself and how this thing happens. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And it's going to take some time. But what you don't want to do, which it doesn't sound like you're doing, which is awesome, is that you don't want to put Sally in charge of your family routines. You went on a trip with Florida with a barfing nephew. You decided to go to the Bronx on Thanksgiving, right? I mean, you guys are like, we're living life. We are not
0: avoiding Thank goodness for my non-anxious husband.
2: (laughs) Okay, so good, right? So that's what's really helpful, right? Because he's saying to your Louise, he's saying, Louise, you're not going to be in charge of this family. Right. So together, you guys are really making sure that this thing doesn't take over. And that's what you want to keep letting your daughter know is that we're going to keep doing stuff. Just like we're not going to let your diabetes run your life. We're not going to let your worry run your life. We're going to be problem solvers. We were talking about reassurance, how not to reassure. She says, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? The instinct is to say, well, that's not going to happen, or that's going to be fine, or the nurse is going to find you. You want to say to her, let's talk about what a good problem solver you are. And let's talk about how you have learned to handle unexpected things, It would be a really good idea for you to do that exercise that I talk about where going around at night at the dinner table or whatever and say, what unexpected thing happened to you and how did you manage it? Yeah. You have to give yourself a lot of credit because you and your husband are showing her problem solving over and over and over again. And you just want to keep demonstrating that to her, but then you want to give her a little narration to go along with it. Mm. You could say to her, we walk into that hotel. Do you know what my worry was saying? My worry was saying, this is terrible. We're going home. And I had to say to the worry, thanks for sharing. How did the rest of the trip go? Did you guys have fun? It was awesome. We had so much fun. So then you want to say to her, so what would have happened if my worry and your worry had teamed up and decided what we were going to do that night? We wouldn't have had that trip. Thank goodness, daddy. Daddy's worry goes
0: straight to problem solving. Okay. And that's what got us a fantastic hotel. Right. Because his worry took him to problem solving instead of panic. Yes. So you can give
2: her those examples and you can tell those stories so that she begins to see the difference. The other thing you want to pay attention with her because the vomiting happens so quickly is how to work on stopping the cycle after she vomits the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And so does she have any skills for that? Has anybody talked to her about
0: that? Not yet. Okay. We haven't gotten there. I mean, because it was when it was before school, like when she was, you know, new school, new town, new this, it was like she vomited seven or eight times mm-hmm. before school. It was so sad. It was just like over and over and over again. It hasn't been like that for quite a while. I mean, except for that New York trip, that overnight. Okay, good. But yeah, she definitely needs skills for how to... Not continue the vomit after it begins. I've created some. I don't know if they're real. Like, I've just noticed that, like, yeah, sitting and watching TV is probably the least helpful thing she could possibly do. She needs to get up and do something. Okay. Coloring or helping me pack lunches or like activating that monkey brain. Getting
2: her engaged in something.
0: Correct. Uh, That's just something I've found. It's not necessarily a tool that we've been given. I'd love to hear if there are better tools.
2: Well, no, that's good. What you're not doing, which is great, is that you're not focused on having her be calm and relax and lie down and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that helps for some people, but I use the term unhook. Some people say, oh, well, we have to give her distraction. I don't like the term distraction so much because to me, when I hear kids talk about distraction, and particularly as they get older, distraction is about like, I can't think about that. And that's never, that becomes an elimination strategy for me. So you're saying, let's get you engaged in your life. Let's keep moving. Let's keep doing the things we need to do. So that's awesome. When she vomits, what's her response to it?
0: It depends where it is, honestly. I mean, she tried STEM club at school, which I was so proud of her. It's very out of her realm of, you know, it was getting to school early, a a new room, and, you know, all of those things. And, we get there and I realize that I haven't really talked to the nurse about when she arrives at school mm-hmm. and we live three minutes from the school and we recognize that there's no nurse there as I'm dropping her off. And so I still leave her because I've got the baby in the car and, the, and I'm like, I gotta go, you know, see ya. And then I get a text vomited in STEM club and mm-hmm. she's fine. She's, can you just bring her some extra clothes? went and brought extra clothes. And I, but then like later on in the day, like after it was all over, she vomited again. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And it was like, she, it was already over. She made it through the thing. Mm -hmm. The nurse was now at school and she vomited again. That was like very unpredictable to me. You know, my therapist has said to me, like the fact that she stays at school is actually a very good sign. Like that she's, she's very resilient. She doesn't, she's not like willing to let this thing ruin things she loves. Part of me is like, I don't think she thinks it's an option to leave school, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> which is probably really <laughs> much she's saying. But I, and I agree with that. I think it's amazing that she's not like crying. I want to go home. Yeah. But if it's at home, it still can go of many different ways. Like she can vomit once and then like, tough it out and it's time to walk out the door. So she's fine. Mm -hmm. If she's got like two hours of anticipation on board for something, it can go very differently. It can be on, you know, every 20 minutes. It can, it it definitely varies how she reacts after the first vomit.
2: Okay. So that would be something that you want to work on with her. That would be a target that I would go after pretty early if I were working with her in therapy is that when you vomit, Because if we start saying, oh, the goal is to not have you vomit, then we've really gotten ourselves into a trap. When you vomit, how are we going to respond to that? Because that's indicative of something. That's just the sign. Your worry fired up your amygdala and sent that message to your tummy, right? That's just a sign. So how are we going to respond and react when you vomit? And give her some language for that. I would probably make her a recording if I were working with her, have a little reminder about how it is that worry shows up and how can we disconnect from that a little bit and how can she become an observer of this response. But that would be something I would talk to her therapist about is can we create some sort of response, some sort of habitual response of, oh, I just threw up. So now let me just remind my worry of this. That's going to be an important step toward getting rid of the vomiting, which of course is what we want to do, so that it doesn't continue. I have some clients who do the exact same thing that you're talking about. They vomit before school repeatedly. They vomit before a concert. They vomit before this. Some kids have gotten really nonchalant about it. They just like vomit and then move on with it. Other kids, then the vomiting becomes something in and of itself that they start to worry about and then it just cycles. Right. As we talked about before with the diabetes, that's what happened with you. It's not
0: good for her to vomit. Right. We, we made it an emergency because we didn't know any better. I say this to everyone and anyone about so many situations that you said it's not about blame. It's res- about responsibility. That's right. That's been so helpful in our life as a family, like recognizing, because before I think uh, often I didn't want to admit it or I didn't because it felt like I made her that way. Mm. But all of us as parents are going to screw our kids up. It's like part of what we do, right? Like you you yes. do and you have to just say, okay, I recognize that we've done this thing, but now it's my responsibility to move forward and help you through it. Right. And so we definitely elevated things to make them emergencies. And honestly, I was brought up that way. It's mm-hmm. still, It's My mother is still everything is an emergency. <laughs> I, I grew up in a Jewish household where like everyone just says it's, It's Jewish guilt. Uh, Yeah, that's the way we are. We're just exuberant. Like, no, these things are like, (laughs) they don't need to be emergency (laughs) status. And I think that's a default of mine sometimes also just because of how I grew up. You're a family of, of Jewish exuberant pukers. Exactly. Jewish exuberant pukers. It's what we are. And <laughs> and I'm at an awesome place where I'm not like, I don't blame my family for, you know, you know I'm dealing with my own stuff now because that's what we do as adults. We yeah, take what we've right. been given and then we move forward and we have to grow. And <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely given a lot of that emergency status issue to her. I love the thought because it's very easy to remember of panic- to problem solving. That's right. And she's going to love problem solving. She's, she loves STEM and science and engineering. And so problem solving is actually very much like in her nature. She loves to do that. So using that language, I think, will be really, really helpful with her. It's awesome.
2: Let me add a third category to this. Okay. Panic, problem solving. Now, because she tends to be anxious, problem solving for her is going to mean I know everything, and I have the answer, and I know what to do. So we've got to have another category, which is panic, problem solving, and then the mites and maybes. Hmm. So we're going to have some uncertainty. So you want to think of examples where you can't know everything ahead. You can't put everything into place. So you do the problem solving that you can do, still knowing that there is uncertainty that you have to deal with. As you're saying that, I'm just thinking to myself, okay, she's going to problem solve every detail, right? And there comes that rigidity.
0: Oh, yeah. Every line. Who are you sitting next to? I'm going to sit next to you. I'm going to sit next to you. She needed to know who was sitting in what exact place on every ride. Yeah. I was like, all right, we, we can figure it out when we're stepping on the ride. Like We're, we're going to be okay here. Like Yeah. So that's the third
2: category because there's yeah. panic, there's problem solving, and then there's the mites and maybes. You know, that would be a good example. We don't need to problem solve where everybody is sitting on what ride. We don't need to problem solve that. Right. We don't need to problem solve exactly what's going to happen at your STEM meeting. We don't need to problem solve. So give her those three categories, panic, problem solving, and mites and maybes. And then when she brings it up, then you can say, now we've done some problem solving. This is a mites and maybe.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: This is a mites and maybe being able to talk that through with her because that's where you want that flexibility to show up.
0: Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I, I could already see a difference in my six-year-old putting some of these things into place that I've learned with him already. Yeah. And even just how independent he already is, even though he, ha- he was nervous on his first day of school or he was this or he was that, like he's confident that he can do it himself. You know, it, it is harder to go backwards with her of like, can I get you your vitamins? Cause they're right next to me. Yes, but you can also get off your butt and go get them for yourself. Yeah. Or you can come get your water. Or you can put like, these are simple things we're talking about here, you know? And so some of that comes into play also where she, she expects me to do a lot of it because I have her whole life, including the problem solving.
2: Right. You can talk to her very directly about that. You can say, you know what? I have had this mindset that I'm supposed to do everything for you. And I'm realizing that is not very helpful. I tell parents, I want you to pick three things that you consistently do for your child that they can do for themselves. And I want you to stop doing them and be very open about it. You could have a conversation with maybe the two older ones, a two-year-old, obviously, we're not going (laughs) to send him off on his own yet. But to say, I've been doing this and this and this, and now it's time for you to graduate out of that. Yeah. So you can be very direct about that. The universe has kind of messed with you because you come from this family with a lot of worry, and you have a tendency to be pukers, and your mom was a worrier, and then you have your first child who's diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It's sort of like, let's see how we can really mess with Elise and see what goes <laughs> right. out here, right? Right. What a fabulous job you're doing in thinking about this. You are on the right track.
0: Well, that's wonderful to hear. And I honestly, the past six months have been huge. Like, yeah, listening to your podcast, being in therapy myself, I, I actually the reason I think I met, mentioned this, you had done a whole session for her whole school system. Oh, and they had sent out the, the podcast. And I was just like, listening to it, like gripped to everything <laughs> like, this is my life. And then I just like binged your podcast for, you know, a month. And it really it's it's amazing. It's such huge work. Fantastic keep it up. Just be very concrete.
2: It's great that you've got this great therapeutic collaboration going on with you and with her. Use that language. I want her to name her worry. I want you to name your worry and really start helping her differentiate between these different ways of responding.
0: Thank you so much. You're so welcome.
2: Thanks for sharing your story with everybody. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people that can relate to this in a lot of ways.
1: Next week, we're going to have our own little movie party because we're going to talk about the new Disney movie, Turning Red, and I have big news. Breaking news. She finally watched Inside Out after after pretending for years that she had.
2: (laughs) So if you haven't listened to the podcast, there's a whole thing of, I hadn't watched Inside Out. And of course, everybody who I see for therapy and a lot of people who know what I do for a living would say like, oh my God, did you see Inside Out? And I would say, no, I haven't seen it. And then people were shocked. What do you mean you haven't seen it? And there would be this long protracted conversation of me explaining, I'm going to see it. So I just started lying. I just started lying. Like people say, oh my God, have you seen Inside Out? And I would say, yes. Did you love it? Oh my God. Yes, I loved it.
1: I watched it, everybody. So we're going to talk about that next week. So you might want to watch that or the new Disney movie, Turning Red, which I'm watching tonight with the family. I hear oh. it's supposed to be amazing.
2: All right. Well, I got to watch that. I can't lie about that. I'm going to break my streak or I'm going to continue my streak of watching movies and then telling the truth about them. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> Everybody
1: goals. Goals. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode.
2: Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn.